Well, let's turn together to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we will read from verse 17 to verse 20. Jesus, his uh, teaching on the Sermon on the Mount continued. Verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law Till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, we once again thank you for your, your son and for giving your son to us. Thank you that we can open up the Bible and read his life, his teachings, and his death and of his resurrection and the hope that we have through him. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit this morning, that you would allow us to see more clearly than we've ever seen into the heart of Christ and to see you through Christ. Please, Lord, arrest our attention this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Jesus begins a new section in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 17. So he takes a turn. He had been talking about the people of God. So with the Beatitudes, he's addressing the, the people, and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the people of God, those who enter the kingdom of heaven. In verse 13 to 16, as we read last week, he says that the people of God are like salt and light, in this world. And do you remember why they're like salt and light? So we talked last week. They're like salt and light to this world because the people of God know God. They know who God is. They understand his character, his heart, and his essence. And for that reason, they're in the world as light, in, in the world as salt. But now in verse 17, Jesus turns to himself and to talk about himself and his teaching on the law. Notice he says, Do not think that I am come to destroy the law. So now he's correcting a view that they might have of him, an incorrect view. So this will take up much of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount now. He turns to his teaching on the law, his teaching on ethics, his teaching on righteousness, The rest of the Sermon on the Mount will find him say, I say unto you. You've heard that it has been said by them of old. You've heard that it has been written, but I say unto you. Now listen to what I have to say, he says. In summary, Jesus says at the end of chapter 7, verse 12, Therefore all things, whatever you would that men do to you, do ye uh, even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So he turns his attention to his teaching on the law. And as we see explicitly introduced in the passage that we read, 
He says, do not think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. What is Jesus' relationship to the law? What is his view of the law? What is his teaching of the law? These are important questions that we need to ask and that people were asking in his day. And notice that there was a mistaken view that it seems like he was correcting. He says, don't think. Don't think what? Here's what you shouldn't think, Jesus says. You shouldn't think that I've come to destroy or loosen or disannul or dissolve the law. Why would anyone think that, do you think? Why would he even have to say that? Do you think if Jesus was coming along and he was just preaching obedience to the law that uh, men would ever get that notion? That uh, he would have to say, don't think that I've come to destroy the law. Jesus must have made men question whether he was dissolving the law or not because his teaching wasn't like the teaching of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the champions of the law in Jesus' day. They were the guys who everyone looked to because they were holding up the law and saying, we need to obey it and do like we are because we're obeying it. Jesus and John the Baptist both criticized the Pharisees and didn't obey their practices. So many of Jesus' actions might have made people question whether he was dissolving the law or not. For example, he didn't eat, he didn't push that you had to wash your hands before you ate, as the Pharisees did. Remember that in the Gospels? The Pharisees themselves asked, why, why does your disciples, why don't they wash their hands? How come you're not teaching them to wash their hands before they eat? Don't you know they could have touched something that might have defiled them ceremoni ceremonially? Don't you think that uh, they should wash their hands? And Jesus didn't teach that. Is he doing away with the law? because he doesn't teach the way the Pharisees do. He heals on the Sabbath day. Now the law says you don't work on the Sabbath day, and here's Jesus performing miracles on the Sabbath day. And as a matter of fact, Jesus got pretty angry with the Pharisees for them being angry with him about healing on the Sabbath day. <laughs> so there was some real contention going on there about whether you should do good on the Sabbath or not. Was he dissolving the law? Because the law says you don't work on the Sabbath. Another thing that might have made men ask this question is Jesus' attitude and relationship with lawbreakers. What, what did the Pharisees think about lawbreakers and those who broke the law and sinned? The Pharisees distanced, distanced themselves from sinners. They were holier than thou. And they didn't feel it was right for them to condone and, and eat with and befriend those who they saw as lawbreakers. And on the other hand, you see Jesus, and of course this made them question, why does Jesus eat with obvious lawbreakers? Jesus isn't confused about them. It's not like, maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't know that last night they were out doing sin. <laughs> he knew. How come he's eating with them? How come he's wanting to spend time with them? How come he's seeming to forgive them and, and be in relationship with them. This was confusing. Was he doing away with the law? Was he dissolving the law? Many of Jesus' parables seem to condone a view of God that God had an open heart for sinners like the prodigal son. The son wastes his father's money on harlots and no sooner does the father see the son that he runs to him, embraces him, changes his clothes and welcomes him, in, welcomes him in and throws a big feast for him. That's an amazing parable, especially when in that time, and even today, many people think God only throws feasts for the good guys, not for the bad guys. That's heavens for obedient, righteous people, not for sinners, obvious sinners. So was Jesus dissolving the law? That's the big question that he here addresses when he first turns to his teaching on righteousness. So you can see how important this is, how central this was, this question. It's still central today. What, what is your view of Christ and the law? Did, in your mind, did Christ come to dissolve the law? Is the gospel to you, is Christianity to you, the message that God just slackens the law and welcomes sinners? because he's lenient. He kind of just, he was wrathful in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament he changed his mind and said, you know, I think there's a better way here. At least that one's not working. I want to show mankind that I'm really not just. And then I'll just accept people. 
Is that your view of Christianity? Well, it's interesting that even though Jesus was eating with sinners, even though Jesus was criticizing the Pharisees, even though Jesus was forgiving sinners and teaching parables about God's grace, here he says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or dissolve the law in any way. Isn't that amazing? What an amazing statement from a man who lived the way he did. Something odd going on here, isn't there? I didn't come to dissolve the law. The law. The law given at Sinai with God on the mountain and the flames and the smoke and the trumpets and whoever touched the mountain would be pierced through. I didn't come to dissolve the law. And yet here I am saying blessed are those who are poor in spirit. In the next verse, Jesus emphasizes what he's just said. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass. Now look what he means when he says law. He's not talking about it in some general sense. Not one jot, not one tittle shall in any way pass until all things be fulfilled. A jot and a tittle. The English word jot is actually a transliteration of the Hebrew word yod. The yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It looks kind of like an English apostrophe. So it's very small. He's saying not one yod will pass away. A tittle in Hebrew would be a coats, which is actually the little horned detail on a Hebrew letter. If you've ever seen the Hebrew letter written out, and there's a beautiful little horn-like flourish or style in the way that they write. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's a coats, which is what Jesus was mentioning here. Not even one of those little horned details on the law will in any way pass before all things will be fulfilled. A yod and a coats. The point is, Jesus is talking about the minutia of the law. It won't pass away. I'm not dissolving it. Everything is intact. Everything will stand. And I don't think he's making a reference here to heaven and earth actually passing away. He's just highlighting the impossibility of the law passing away. He says it's easier for all of this to dissolve for the law than for the law to dissolve. It's interesting. Here we have a little glimpse of Jesus' view of Scripture. What an amazing view of Scripture it is. Jesus, did you know that the Jewish people of his time used this very expression, that not one yod or coats would ever pass away? It would be easier for heaven to pass away for, than for one little horn-like flirt. Jesus is actually saying, yeah, I affirm that saying. I am on that side of that view of Scripture. I agree that the law is not to be dissolved in every jot, every tittle, will stand. In this way, we learn that Jesus' view of Scripture is the same as, say, an Orthodox Jew or a Christian today. On the conservative side of the scale, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's many liberal Christians who uh, you know, claim to believe in the Bible, but their view of Scripture is that yeah, it gets changed over time, or it's not really divinely inspired in every letter. It's kind of The Word of God is contained in the Bible, but you have to kind of find it in there. The traditional view that Christians have held is actually the traditional view that uh, Orthodox Jews have held. And if you know this, even in Judaism, they have a liberal end of the scale and a conservative end of the scale. The conservative would be the Orthodox Jews. The liberal would be like the Reformed Jews. The liberal Jews, like the liberal Christians, also say, well, the Old Testament is the, God's words in it. But we have to kind of find it. Not every letter is divinely inspired like the Orthodox Jews say. You know, we don't actually believe that Moses was inspired to write every jot and tittle. Although the traditional view is that God inspired every letter. Every word is divinely inspired and will not pass away. This is the traditional Christian view. And we find Jesus here with that same view. So I think if Jesus stood here today 
and we were to ask him, so what view of scripture do you hold, Jesus? Infallibility? Inerrancy? Uncorruptibility? Or are you more liberal where like God's word's in there, but you got to find it and it's got a lot of human stuff you got to watch? He'd say, infallibility, inerrancy, and I didn't come to dissolve it. It would be easier for all of this material universe to pass away than for the divine word of God to pass away. Jesus, we see, was a man of scripture. You can't read the Gospels without being struck by his respect for the authority of scripture. Jesus, when he taught, taught from the scripture, when he fought with Satan, answered Satan with scripture, and he said that the Pharisees were in error because they didn't know the scriptures. He said Moses will condemn them on judgment day because they don't believe what he said. Jesus was a man of scripture. On the cross, he quoted scripture. When he rose from the dead, he explained the scriptures to the disciples, starting with Moses and reading all the way through the prophets. Amen? So, this is a wonderful thing. Just so you know, Christians believe in the inspiration of the Bible as we do because Jesus believed it. That's very important. We get our doctrine of the Bible from Jesus. We didn't just kind of adopt that along the way through the centuries to scare people or to control people, but because we believe, as Jesus has taught us, that God has revealed himself through Scripture and it will not pass away. So how much more ought we to be men and women of Scripture as well who honor the word of God, the living God, whom he has given and inspired how much more ought we to read this book and study it and know it and believe it? As Jesus gives us an amazing commendation of it here. Now, we find here that there's no discord in Jesus' mind between, say, now the New Testament didn't exist in his day, but there's no discord between his teaching and his action and the Old Testament. He says, do not think that I've come to dissolve the law or the prophets, but I have not come to destroy or dissolve it, but to fulfill it. Not one jot or tiller will pass away till all be fulfilled. So here we learn there's no discord between the Old Testament and everything that's contained in the New Testament. Everything about Jesus that Jesus did and said, everything that the apostles said about Jesus, no discord. It's through poor reading of the Bible that we come to this conviction that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Have you heard that before? You ever heard maybe a non-Christian accuse that? Accuse uh, the Bible of presenting two different gods? That is not in Jesus' mind. Everything he's come to do is a fulfillment of every jot and tittle of the Old Testament. Many Bible readers miss this. And it's because, and mark this, they miss God's heart. They miss the heart of God revealed in the Old Testament. They miss the heart of God revealed in the Old Testament. Brothers and sisters, we do not believe in two different gods, a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New. We don't believe that the God of the Old Testament is a big meanie and the God of the New Testament is a nice guy. We do not believe that. We do not believe that the God of the Old Testament is all about justice only and the God of the New Testament is all about love only and mercy. You can't read the Old Testament unless you're blind, and that is very common, without seeing the mercy and the love of God. And you can't read the New Testament unless you're blind without seeing the justice and the wrath of God. Amen? Think about the Garden of Eden. What kind of God is presented to us in the Old Testament, in the scriptures, divinely inspired? God creates this beautiful world for mankind, and men sin against him. Does he crush them? Does he take his thumb and smash them back into the dirt and say, that's it? 
No, what does God do when men sin? The first man and the first woman, God clothes them. God gives them hope. God promises them a Savior. Why would God do that? Why doesn't, if he's just just, why doesn't he just squash them? He's got no love, right? He's just the God of the Old Testament. There's no love in the God of the Old Testament. He's just justice. If that was true, God would have just squashed Adam and Eve right there. Now, mind you, God is just, and their sin deserved death. But what did God do? He clothed them. He covered their shame. And he promised them a Savior. And who was that Savior? We realize later. God himself. God is love. The flood. Yes, a powerful demonstration of the justice of God. It is true. Mankind deserves wrath, and God does pour out his wrath upon mankind. But the love of God revealed at the flood is also amazing, and we can't miss that. I hope that you will see the mercy of God in the flood, and you'll not just see that as justice only. First of all, God spares mankind by putting one family on the ark. And it says why, because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And what happened when God opened up the ark after 40 days and 40 nights and when the waters receded? Man came out of that ark with all the animals. And what does God say? I will never again flood the earth on account of man's sin. Never again. He puts a rainbow in the sky a beautiful sign of his mercy towards mankind. Now, brothers and sisters, the earth is just as wicked as it has ever been. And mankind deserve to be flooded again and again and again on a daily basis. That rainbow is there to show us of God's mercy. God's mercy. And then God chooses Abraham. And what is his promise to Abraham? I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. There you see the heart of God is for blessing mankind, not for cursing mankind. Have you noticed that? That the call of Abraham is a revelation of God's heart for mankind. He loves them. They're sinners and they're under a curse. He wishes to bless. He wishes to bless. That is a good God. Then we find his history with Abraham's seed. What do you take away when you read about the history of this nation of Israel? What do you take away from it? Do you take away from the history of Israel that, oh, I learned from the Old Testament that if we don't obey God's commandments, he's going to crush us. Is that what you learn from the Old Testament? That the number one lesson is we need to not be like Israel. We need to not be like them. Because if we do, we'll be cursed too. There may be a little bit of truth to that. But if that's what you think, you're thinking like a Pharisee. What you need to see is that, wow, Israel blew it. And Israel had a lot of advantage that the other nations didn't have. God revealed himself in miracles and gave them the law and instructed them and sent prophets to them, and they blew it. But look at the mercy and the grace of God continually revealed to this sinful nation, continually revealed, feeding them in the desert, providing them water, providing them a land, delivering them from their enemies, even judging them as a mercy, his discipline, bringing them back to the land and never once breaking his promise to them, breaking his covenant to them. Now, all in all, we hear God saying his heart is broken because of these people, because he brought them to himself like a wife and they have committed adultery on him and his heart is broken. But even though Israel commits adultery on him in a spiritual sense, God never commits adultery on them. Don't you see the beauty of the heart of God revealed in the Old Testament? I pray that we would banish the thought forever that the God of the Old Testament is not a God of love or it's a different God. 
and the God of the New Testament. God's love is amazing, and it's revealed there with his actions and dealings with people in the Old Testament. And here's the point. Had the Pharisees known God in the Old Testament, then they would have known Jesus. Didn't Jesus say that? If you had known my Father, then you would have believed in me. If you had believed Moses, then you would have believed me. Jesus accused the Pharisees of not knowing the Father. The Pharisees, when they read the Old Testament, they saw the justice of God, the law of God, but they missed the heart of God, and they missed the law of God too, and the purpose of it. They were blinded by their self-righteousness. They thought, oh, we're better than the Israelites of, of the past. What did they say? If we were in those days, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. Right? Jesus, of course, criticizes them for that too. They didn't see themselves in the story. They didn't say, I'm, I'm a sinner too. If I were in, those, in that situation, I would have been condemned too. Ask yourself, if you lived in the days of Noah, would you have been on the ark? Or would you have been drowning in the water? Most of us probably think, oh, I think I'd be on the ark. Right? Probably not. Probably none of us would have been on the ark. Do you believe that? If you were an Israelite in the desert, would you have been uh, like Moses? Or would you have been like everyone else complaining and murmuring? We probably all think, oh, I'd be like Moses. The reality is, we'd probably all be murmurers and complainers. We probably all would have been bitten by snakes. True? Do you see yourself as a sinner? Or are you like a Pharisee and say, oh, thank you that I'm not like other men? One thing Jesus says to the Pharisees is that they didn't know mercy. If you had only known this, he said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. They didn't know mercy because that's what self-righteousness does, brothers and sisters. Self-righteousness blinds you from seeing the mercy in the heart of God because you look at the law and you wrongly conclude that you keep it. You distance yourself from sinners and you say, I'm not with them. I'm obedient. I'm good. And when you declare your own righteousness, you blind yourself from seeing the mercy of God because you don't need the mercy of God. You've got the justice of God and you're on the good side of that, so you think. You're just going to get what you deserve. And what you think you deserve is something good. There's no mercy there. You're not a sinner. You're not someone who's looking to God's mercy for your strength and help and salvation because what you deserve is coming your way. And since you did it and they didn't, you're better than they are and they don't have an excuse so you don't have mercy for sinners. You don't eat with sinners. You don't identify with sinners. They couldn't see the heart of God and here's the clincher. The heart of God the love of God or the mercy of God leads to substitution and sin-bearing love. The heart of God leads to the cross. When you know the God of the Old Testament, you realize Christ crucified, that's, that's God. That was inevitable. That was where God was going. Because his heart leads to sin-bearing love. It leads to forgiveness. It leads to the cross. That's what his love does. As we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when Paul gives a description of love, it says love is patient and love is kind. He says this very important thing. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Or love forgives. It's forgiving. If you love somebody, then you are forgiving towards them. 
love leads to forgiveness. But in God's case, love must lead to the cross because there cannot be forgiveness with a just God without the blood of Christ being shed. Do you see that? It's a little different with us. See, we aren't each other's judges, right? I'm not wearing a white wig and a black robe, and I don't have a gavel in my hand to bring it down every time somebody sins. I'm not a judge. In fact, I'm a sinner just like everyone else. I'm a sinner like you. I can't judge you unless I condemn myself. And Jesus teaches us this, that we are to freely forgive one another because we all are sinners, and we're not one another's judges. So forgive. However, God is not a sinner. And God is your judge. And God is just. And so when you sin, he is going to judge you. And he must judge you. And he must deal with your sin. So God is in a different situation than you and I are when it comes to forgiving. But at the same time, God loves. His heart is for you. And he is forgiving towards you. So where does, it inevitably, where does it inevitably must go? To the cross. There's no other way God can forgive. The cross is not a statement of God's unwillingness to forgive, as if, well, I can forgive Indira without the cross. How come God needs a cross to forgive? Does he need a cross to be shown in his face before he's forgiving? No. God's in a different situation than I am. The cross is not a statement of his unwillingness, the cross is the greatest statement of his willingness to forgive. Because he wants to forgive sinners, he makes the way through Christ, Christ crucified. In 1 John, John tells us that the love of God is manifested in that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is the love of God manifested. When John, or when the apostles think of love, they think of Christ being the propitiation for our sins. And in 1 John chapter 2, he says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate from the Father. Now, we all sin, so we need to hear this, don't we? I need to hear this. If anyone sins, we have an advocate from the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. What does that mean? He's essentially saying, if anyone sins, understand that we have a, a loving God. We have an advocate from the Father because God loves us and has provided a propitiation for us because of his love. Next time you sin, don't just think, oh, I'm glad that I've got the blood of Jesus to cover me. That's true. Next time you sin, think, I'm glad that God loves me. And that because he loves me, he forgives me through his son. The heart of God leads to substitution. The only way our sins could be forgiven. The Pharisees didn't see had they known, they would have known him and they didn't. So Jesus says, don't think that I've come to destroy the law or dissolve the law. I'm not coming to dissolve anything. Yes, there's a law. Yes, God is just. Yes, every yod and coats will be fulfilled. And I'm not in my death doing away with any of that. J.C. Ryle, a pastor in England in the 1800s, he said of this verse, the Lord Jesus came to fulfill the predictions of the prophets who had long foretold that a Savior would one day appear. He came to fulfill the ceremonial law by becoming the great sacrifice for sin to which all the Mosaic offerings had ever pointed. He came to fulfill the moral law by yielding to it a perfect obedience which we could never have yielded, and by paying the penalty for our breach of it with his atoning blood, which we could never have paid. In all of these things, he exalted the law of God and made its importance more evident even than it had been before. In a word, 
quoting from Isaiah, he magnified the law and made it honorable. And J.C. Ryle is absolutely correct that the death of Christ on the cross fulfills the prophets, it fulfills the law ceremonial, ceremonially and morally, it reveals to us the heart of God, but as his last statement from Isaiah says, he makes the law of God, its importance more evident than ever before. When we look at the cross, we should say, wow, the law is not dissolved. Wow, everything that God promised was fulfilled. Wow, every judgment that God ever threatened is going to be fulfilled and is fulfilled in Him and will be fulfilled on those who don't believe. Wow, the law is honored and exalted by Christ. Ironically, it was the Pharisees who were dissolving the law. Look at verse 19 and 20. Jesus now addresses the Pharisees. The very ones who accused him of dissolving the law, the very ones who were the supposed champions of the law, Jesus now addresses them, verse 19 and 20, by saying, Whoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, he shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. The same word in the verse 19, whoever will break the commandments, is the same word uh, that is used to destroy the law in verse 17. So Jesus is saying, I didn't come to dissolve the law. Whoever dissolves even the least commandment will be esteemed the least in the kingdom of heaven. That verse doesn't mean they'll be in the kingdom of heaven. It means the kingdom of heaven will esteem them the least. Those are the lawbreakers. Those are the law dissolvers, the lawless. And he says the Pharisees did it because you need to have a righteousness greater than theirs or else you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. He's essentially saying they won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Sobering and sad thought. If they continue in their blindness, they, won't not, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. If they continue in their self-righteousness, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They think they're righteous, but they need to have a greater righteousness. The Pharisees dissolved the law by claiming they were righteous when they really weren't. By hiding their sin, Jesus and John the Baptist and the apostles called out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. You clean the outside of the cup and you look good to men, but inwardly you're full of dead man's bones. You do good deeds, it's true, but you do them to be seen by men because you're full of pride. And yet you profess that you're righteous? You're hiding your sin. You're hiding the truth about who you are. You are just like everyone else, but you're hiding it. You're a hypocrite, pretender. And when you hide your sin, God remains hidden from you. God remains hidden from those who hide their sin. God is known to those who confess their sin and say, you know what? I'm not righteous. God, is there mercy for me? There is abundant mercy for you, my child. God is known to those who are poor in spirit. You see, God's law demands absolute moral perfection, brothers and sisters, and we can add Jesus' words here to those valuable passages that say the law demands absolute total obedience. Not one, you can't break the least of the commandments. Have you ever felt the gravity of that? If you, if you break the least the least commandment. As we've talked about before, self-righteous people don't like to think about that because they excuse their little sins. These are just little sins. At least they don't commit the big sins, right? The big five or whatever they may be. At least they don't commit the big sins. The little ones, yeah, I commit them, but I'm still a good person. I'm still okay. Jesus says the least 
Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, Moses says, If you add or take away from anything of this law and you don't obey it, you're under the curse. He reiterates that in 12.32, and Jesus also is saying the same thing here. You don't add to the law and you don't take away from it. You do exactly what God has commanded you to do. In the book of James, chapter 2, verse 10, we have one of the most important statements of this truth. Let this sink in. James writes, Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Did you know that one of the main reasons we don't really feel the pressure of our law-breaking is because we don't grasp the reality of judgment, the reality of God's judging us. We, we know things are wrong, but we do them because we don't feel like we're going to be detected or that that will really be brought up on the judgment day. But let me challenge you to think about this. If you knew that tomorrow God was going to judge everything that you've ever done, everything, to the last and least point, and if you did not, and God is going to remain true and not dissolve any of his law, if you did not obey all that he said, you will be cast out. Now, we're not talking about Christ here. We're talking about the justice and the law of God. If you knew that tomorrow God was going to judge you, and if you have any sin whatsoever, he will cast you out, I think the pressure would be on. Men sin on because they don't fear the judgment. Jesus always teaches us about the reality of judgment, and that's why he came. When you fear the judgment... When you think about that, you realize you're a sinner. You can't hide any longer. You say, there must be another way for me. I can't go on in this delusion, in this illusion of self-righteousness. I'm unrighteous and I need a savior. Is there some hope for me? Jesus says, you need to have a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. But he doesn't tell us how to get that, does he? The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is not to tell us how to be righteous. It's to tell us that we need to be righteous and that we cannot be righteous through obedience to the law. But turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And we come to the words of the apostles. Jesus talks about this very thing, but it, it comes to full expression right here. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And remember that, verse 21 of chapter 3, remember that Jesus has just said, don't think that I've come to dissolve the law and the prophets. I have not come to dissolve the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. And I want you to notice the expression law and prophets right here. In Romans chapter 3, verse, let's start in verse 19. Now we know that whatever things the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That's what the law does. It says what it says, so the whole world may be guilty before God. Therefore, verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, or by doing the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's where the law is going to leave you, okay? The law is a very good thing. Jesus is going to teach about the law, He's going to honor the law. He's going to exalt the law. But remember, you break the least point of the law, you're guilty of all. No one, therefore, is going to be righteous or justified before God by obedience to the law. How then can we be justified? The Pharisees were telling us we need to do the law. Jesus is saying you need to have a righteousness greater than theirs because they won't be justified. But here it says in verse 21, but now, and here is the good news, and here is what the gospel of sin-bearing love is all about. But now, the righteousness of God, and mark what it says next, without the law. 
the righteousness of God without the law, without the law, is now revealed or is manifested. Something new and shocking has been revealed. Righteousness without law. Look what it says next here. It is witnessed by the law and the prophets. See, Jesus has this in mind when he says, I didn't come to dissolve but to fulfill. And the law and the prophets testify that none will be righteous by the law, but that there's a righteousness from God without the law that's coming and now has come in Jesus Christ, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned. That's all. That includes the Pharisees. All have sinned or are in the same boat and come short of the glory of God. And here's the righteousness. And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. And there we find the preaching of the cross. God, in his love, the heart of God, has sent Christ to be the propitiation for our sins, has sent Christ to be the substitute who would die on the cross for our sins, who would take the penalty that we deserve to take away our sins so that we could be clothed our shame taken away and righteous in God's sight freely as a gift. This is the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That is the heart of God. That is where the heart of God goes for each one of us, brothers and sisters, because we're all sinners. If God did not love you, there would not be a propitiation. The propitiation is there because of God's love. So was Jesus dissolving the law? No. He was fulfilling the law. Though we are not saved by the law, our salvation is not a dissolving of the law. Hope that's very clear in your minds. And just like Jesus was accused of being a law dissolver, there's a fancy word for this, an antinomian, Anti means against the law. Antinomian. Just like Jesus was accused, Christians are also accused. Have you ever been accused of that as a Christian? If you happily tell somebody, did you know that you're a sinner but that Jesus died for you and you can be saved as a totally free gift of God's love and grace? Did you know that it's not by obedience to the commandments that you're righteous like the Pharisees thought because no one will be right that way, but it's through faith. It's through trusting in the goodness, trusting in the mercy of God revealed in Christ that you can be saved and people say oh come on you're just a you're an antinomian you're a law dissolver god gave us commandments and you're just dissolving the law ironically we're not dissolving the law because brothers and sisters the law is only honored when men do not seek to be justified by it does that make sense the law is only honored it's only honored when we believe in Jesus Christ and him crucified and when men do not seek to be justified by it. Because if you seek to be justified by it, you're essentially saying, yeah, I keep the law. The law's not that difficult or the law doesn't require total perfection. The law's not that amazing. It's when you see the law for what it really is that you have to say, I can't be justified by that. It's, it's too good. It's, it's an expression of the of the righteousness of God, and I can't do that. Is there any other way for me to be righteous? Yes, Christ crucified. And when you believe that, you honor the law instead of dishonoring it like the Pharisees did. So, in closing, just a little self-reflection for every one of us. 
Just ask yourself, where's your righteousness? Are you going to enter the kingdom of heaven? According to the words of Jesus, do you possess a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees? Does your righteousness consist in you thinking that you're an obedient person or a a law keeper? Does your righteousness consist in self-righteousness? Does your righteousness have to do with law? If so, then you're actually against the law and you don't know God. Or do you identify with the sinners of this world and realize that the law condemns you, makes you guilty. The law is so holy and good, and you're not. And that you need Christ. You need a propitiation. And that you need to be righteous apart from the law. Not a, not a dissolving of the law, but apart from the law. Through faith, through trusting in the goodness of God. If that's the case then I welcome you as a, as a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ as one who knows God because you have understood the heart of God. The heart of God is Christ crucified. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you do indeed love us. And may we trust in your love and rest assured in your love. Not this lenient nice, pathetic, content-less love, but the love that bears sin, the love that forgives, the love that pays the penalty of, of our crimes and our sins against you so that we could be forgiven. Thank you for revealing your heart to us through the scriptures and through your actions and most of all, through Christ crucified. May we all look to him to see you. May we all realize that we have no righteousness apart from the righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.